Well, the inevitable happened yesterday. The jury in the Derek Chauvin trial came back with a guilty verdict. Nobody is surprised at that, uh, except those of us who are a little bit more in tuned with the law and the standards of proof associated with a criminal conviction. But the masses have been led to believe and fully expect that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt. After all, we saw it all on videotape. So what was there to be debated? In fact, most people were perplexed and apoplectic as to why there was even a trial in the first place. Why didn't we just haul Mr. Chauvin off to the gallows and hang him? Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the National Preview Online podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. Go to either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending which device you use, and search out the NPO podcast and click subscribe. If you'd prefer to use a third-party podcast aggregator app instead of your native app, simply download the free Podbean app at either of those two stores and you can subscribe to the NPO podcast that way. Either way, you'll be notified as soon as a new episode is uploaded. You will also be able to leave reviews, make comments, and we do ask that you leave some reviews because the more positive reviews we receive, the more quickly the show will grow and the more offerings we'll be able to bring to you, including a call in line when we broadcast live, which we will be doing in the coming months, and then the podcast will be uh, will be recorded and then put up into the iTunes Play Store and the Google uh, App Store as well. So, in Minneapolis, the jury deliberated and they came back with a guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin. Now, after viewing ad nauseum that videotape footage, that snapshot in time, uh, a very small a piece of the overall video, which was more like eight or nine minutes that showed the totality of circumstances, uh, people were primed and ready for a guilty verdict and would have probably been uh, furious if there had been anything other than a guilty verdict. But having watched the trial, having listened to some of the summations and the medical evidence, it's clear that the prosecution didn't meet their burden. This was a conviction by uh, inference. This was a conviction by political expediency. This was not a conviction based on the weight of the evidence. I've told you all from the beginning that far from the fact that you see Officer Chauvin or former Officer Chauvin with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, that is not the principal problem in getting a conviction. You have to get past causation. If you cannot establish first that the knee on the neck for those period of minutes that they allege he had it on there, if you cannot establish that that is not the proximate cause of his death, then the fact that he had his knee on his neck is of no consequence in terms of convicting him for murder. Now, the medical examiner said that he did not die from the knee on his neck. In fact, that there were no injuries to even to the soft tissues of his neck as a consequence of that knee being placed on his neck. So it brings into question just how much weight and just how much force Officer Chauvin put on that knee when he had it on George Floyd's neck. You had, as I told you before, the lieutenant in charge of homicide in the Minneapolis Police Department, ostensibly called by the prosecution because he was the longest-serving police officer in the city of Minneapolis, saying that he called it top-tier deadly force. And so I made the statement that saying it's top-tier deadly force to put your knee on someone's neck is the equivalent 
of saying it's it's like on a par with a gunshot or with a stab wound or something along those lines or a bludgeon. And when any of those three things are used on a human being and they hit the target, we're not assuming, of course, that people miss, when they hit the target, they cause injury. There's no way that somebody gets hit with a club, stabbed with a knife, or shot with a bullet and has no injury. So it's, it's pretty laughable when you have someone calling this top-tier deadly force and there's no injury to the man. And you can't say, what? There's no injury. The man is dead. Yes, of course he's dead. That's like telling me the sky is blue. But he's not dead from that. He's dead from something else. Uh, among other things, the man had uh, a veritable pharmacy on board of intoxicants in his system, including methamphetamine and fentanyl. I read his official autopsy report. But Terrence Floyd, one of the late Mr. Floyd's brothers, t- held a press conference in Minnesota yesterday saying, we got the verdict we wanted. My brother's not here. I'm grateful and I'm proud of him. Now, I'm sure he got the verdict that he wanted, but the verdict that he wanted is necessarily the verdict that was required or the verdict that justice demanded should be held out. And I don't quite know what he's grateful to his brother for, and I don't quite know what he's proud of his brother for. From what I could see, having read about Mr. Floyd's life, Mr. Floyd never really amounted to anything for most of his life. He had several brushes with the law, and one of the high points of his life and his criminal career was being involved in a home invasion robbery in the state of Texas where he held a loaded gun to the stomach of a pregnant woman. And this is not the sort of person that I would want to go out to tea with. He's not the sort of person that people should be proud of. If my brother had done something like that, I certainly wouldn't say that I was grateful and proud of him. So I assume that he's grateful uh, because his brother died at the hands of the Minneapolis police instead of just a straight overdose because that allowed him and his family to be participants and sharing in $27 million that the city of Minneapolis just plucked out of the air as a figure appropriate for settling his wrongful death action and gave to the family. Uh, If you recall, a few weeks back on this podcast, I did a show where I talked about how one goes about calculating um, awards in wrongful death. And I came upon a website, a website of an attorney who engages in civil actions. And he explained, you know, you have to take into account the age of the victim at the time of death what they did for a living, what their earning potential was for the rest of their life, and how much of that earning power their family was now going to be denied, and of course the loss of nurturing if he had a child and the wife and all of that. I'm not aware that how many children Floyd had if he had any, Uh, but as regards his earning potential, that's pretty interesting because the attorney's website that I came across was none other than the website of the attorney that was representing the Floyd family. And by his own inexorable standard, there is no way that George Floyd warranted $27 million in an award. George Floyd couldn't have earned $27 million in 27 lifetimes. The notion that he deserves $27 million to me is unthinkable and is just showing you the extent to which politicians in this country are willing to pander, paying ransom money to rabble ransom money to anarchists in order to keep having additional violence visited upon them 
uh, and their cities. But apparently, that's not all, that that's not working. Because in Portland, now I don't know what it is with the city of Portland, because Portland is kind of remotely located from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. But in the city of Portland, in the aftermath of the guilty verdict, the people went crazy and rioted. They smashed windows at Starbucks. They attacked a police officer. They hit a sergeant and almost knocked him out. Other officers had to come in and rescue him. It says here, approximately 10.07 p.m., an officer was wheeling his bicycle on the sidewalk when a person stepped in his path. The sergeant moved the person aside and kept walking, but was then punched in the face by another person. Quote, the sergeant landed in a dangerous position underneath the suspect and on his back. That's when other officers moved in to stop the assault. In response to the violent conduct, some focused blows were used. This obviously is police speak trying to justify why they had to use force. I don't think you have to justify it. It's pretty self-evident when somebody cold cocks a police officer and sucker punches him. Uh, Pepper spray was also deployed by an officer. After the suspect was handcuffed, officers rendered aid to help alleviate the effects of pepper spray. Well, I would say that's very professional on their part. It was up to me. I'd let him burn. Suspect was arrested and identified as Randy Gray, 36. He was charged with assaulting an officer, among other charges. Another arrest was made. Uh, apparently, Mr. Gray could not be reached for comment. I don't know why he should be reached for comment. He shouldn't be able to be near a phone. He should be in jail pending a bail hearing, uh, and bail should be denied. But we don't know what's going to happen up there. But this is Portland. And now we've got the acting Portland police chief and the mayor of Portland weighing in on Chauvin's conviction, saying he hoped he would be convicted of murder. Perhaps he should mind his own business and leave the affairs of Minneapolis, Minnesota to uh, Minnesotans instead of him in, in inveighing uh, against Officer Chauvin and weighing in on his uh, plight. Because as I said before, this is done for political expediency. It is completely against the weight of the evidence. Now, flanking George Floyd's brother was the ever-present perennial piece of garbage, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Let me tell you a little bit about the Reverend Al. Reverend Al is the preeminent shakedown artist and racial huckster in the United States of America. He often steps in, uninvited, interjects himself and everything, inflames public opinion, sets the stage for an expectation of a conviction, all knowing full well beforehand that in many cases that conviction is not going to come because it's against the weight of the evidence, and so that this can now further justify additional violence and anarchy in the aftermath of an acquittal. He never consults with the family beforehand, but after he does all this, he then has his hands out and demands money from the family for all of the unrest that he sowed uh, which he thinks accrues to their benefit civilly. So Al Sharpton is not interested in justice. Al Sharpton is interested in money, money lining his own pocket. That's all he's ever given a hoot about. And you or I would not be invited guests in the White House like he was when President Obama was president if we owed the over $3.5 million in back taxes to the federal government that the Reverend Al Sharpton is estimated so we have something very, very unseemly going on here. We now have a new culture where, particularly in these blue states, police officers are going to be sacrificed if that we think that that's going to buy us peace. We're going to be held hostage by punks in Antifa 
and Black Lives Matter. That's exactly what's happening here. And we can now get a glimpse into what the future holds for Officer Kim Potter. For those of you who don't know her name, Kim Potter is the female officer who accidentally reached for her taser and wound up pulling out her service weapon and shot Dante Wright, who subsequently expired from his wounds. Now, Dante Wright was stopped for a very, very minor infraction, but what is not really spoken about is that Dante Wright was wanted for aggravated robbery committed back in February of this year. When they stopped him for this minor infraction, they didn't know this, but then they ran his name and they found out that there was a warrant for him that he was wanted in connection with this robbery. When he became aware that they were aware, he suddenly stopped being compliant and tried to boogie because he knew he was going to be taken down for the robbery. And that's what caused this whole thing to escalate into a violent situation, which necessitated Officer Potter saying, taser, 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 as she went to grab her taser and accidentally grabbed her service weapon. Now, it's certainly a tragedy. She certainly didn't mean to shoot him. She clearly intended to use a taser. She clearly intended to warn him that she was going to use a taser in an effort to get him to cease and desist from what he was doing, and she unfortunately grabbed her weapon and shot him. I don't know how you can call that manslaughter, but even without a grand jury, they have already arrested this woman for manslaughter, even though she resigned her position 24 hours after the incident, which is unprecedented. But apparently that wasn't enough. So we have all of this going on. Now, if that's not enough, the Department of Justice is not satisfied. Now, normally, when a person is convicted of state's charges in a police case, the Department of Justice doesn't get involved. They only prosecute if there was something wrong with the state case, if they think there was an infirmity in the state case, if there was a really, really overwhelming federal issue, and then they come in with a civil rights charge. But in this case, Officer Chauvin was convicted, and from what I understand, he potentially faces a very substantial uh, prison sentence. Someone said almost upward of 40 years um, if, if sentenced on all counts. Now, whether the judge actually does that or whether the judge, who was on the verge of declaring a mistrial, may temper justice with mercy and uh, give him something uh, somewhat less. But we have Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking out about a jury's verdict in the case against Officer Chauvin. And in response, the DOJ is now launching a civil investigation into Minneapolis policing after the Chauvin conviction. Well, why? This should certainly be evidence that the city of Minneapolis is not going to tolerate anything with with respect to policing in that they convicted him. The investigation will determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in, quote, a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing, Garland said during a press conference. Attorneys and other personnel from the DOJ Civil Rights Division and U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Minnesota will join the investigation. According to the DOJ, the scope of the investigation includes whether the Minneapolis PD engages in a pattern or practice of using excessive force, including during protests, and whether they engage in discriminatory conduct, whether their treatment of those with behavioral health disabilities is unlawful. This is almost laughable, if it were not so sad and true that they're going to go forward with this. Because here we have 
a police officer who, in my opinion, I still say is wrongfully convicted for all the reasons I mentioned because of an unflattering video. That's about it. Uh, and they're engaging in all of this. Now, he was convicted. He's going to be sentenced for a substantial period of time. Uh, and they're still going to go forward with an investigation. Meanwhile, if they're that wedded and thirsty for an investigation, I would advise you, Merrick Garland, uh, would-be Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland, and now we know why the Republicans opposed you for being on the Supreme Court in the later uh, port of uh, Barack Obama's second term, because this is the kind of garbage we can expect from you. You want to do an investigation, look no further than your own backyard. I would still like someone to explain to me, what is the rationale for not prosecuting the officer, whose name we still don't know, by the way, who murdered, and I do mean murdered, Ashley Babbitt in the Capitol on that day when Trump made his speech back in January. Now, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you who are new to the program or have not heard me speak about this topic before, I will speak about the topic once again, because now we have a very, very good uh, comparison table to juxtapose this argument. So let me explain something to you. We now have the DOJ salivating over the opportunity to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department when it, it seems to me that the Minneapolis and Minnesota authorities have already adequately investigated this issue and <clears throat> with an almost unparalleled thirst have convicted this man, even though, as I said before, it's against, in my opinion, the weight of the evidence. So now let's juxtapose that to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice who's going to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department and God knows what other police departments throughout the country, holding them to the highest of standards, standards that they themselves cannot and do not live up to. In my own home state of New York, I know something about the law of justification. In New York, a police officer may use deadly physical force under a number of circumstances. And these circumstances are divided into basically two stages, what they call the prevent-terminate stage, meaning you can use deadly physical force to prevent or terminate things already in progress of a certain category. The other category is the arrest category. The event, the event has already taken place, and you're allowed to use deadly physical force to arrest for certain crimes. Now, the New York City Police Department used to use codes for this. For the prevent-terminate stage, they used a code called Dr. Barks. And for the arrest stage, they used a code called Mr. and Mrs. Now, what does this mean? Well, at the prevent-terminate stage, using Dr. Barks, it means you could use deadly physical force to prevent <clears throat> excuse me, and or terminate deadly physical force being used against yourself or a third person. You could also use deadly physical force to prevent or terminate a burglary in the first degree. A robbery in the first degree. I took it out of order. Dr. Barks. Deadly physical force, R for robbery, B for burglary. A for arson in the first degree. Followed by R for rape in the first degree. Followed by K for kidnapping in the first degree followed by S for sodomy in the first degree. That's at the prevent-terminate stage. Now, at the arrest stage, we have Mr. and Mrs. 
murder in the, in the first or second degree, robbery in the first degree, manslaughter in the first degree, rape in the first degree, and sodomy in the first degree. You can arrest for any of those things. So now, let's look at all that and look at how the Justice Department in its agencies justifies deadly physical force. The FBI have very simple guidelines on the use of deadly physical force, and eventually most police departments are going to go this route because it's really unambiguous, as unambiguous as it, as it can be, and it's pretty simple. And that is, the, deadly, the FBI feels that deadly physical force is only justified when you're preventing deadly physical force being imminently used against yourself or in the process of being used against yourself or a third person, person to protect your life or the life of another, essentially. They don't even factor in those other crimes. But then again, the FBI is an investigative agency, and even though they're given police officer status in many of the states where they may be based, uh, as a courtesy of the state legislature, they are not police officers just per se. Arresting is not their primary function. Investigation. Investigations that go on infinitum with no result and no conclusion. That's their stock and trade. Now, we take that, that guideline from the Justice Department, and we now apply it to Ashley Babbitt at the Capitol. Even using the more expansive definition of the New York City Police Department, uh, this was a prevent-terminate. She wasn't trying to flee, so we can take out the arrest part of the stage. The act was in progress. So let's look at the prevent-terminate stage. Was there a deadly physical force being imminently threatened against that lieutenant? We did find out at least that he's a lieutenant. Or a third person? I didn't see it, and I didn't see it because it didn't exist. Was there a robbery in the first degree or robbery of any kind? No. Was there a burglary? Well, burglary is usually referred to as a burglary of a dwelling. And in New York State, burglary of a dwelling is a place where people are lodged overnight. And if you have an aggravating factor, like you cause harm while you're there or you're possessed of a deadly weapon when you go, that elevates it to burglary in the first degree. If you don't have any of those aggravating factors and you go into a dwelling, it's burglary in the second degree. Now, the Capitol is not a place where people are lodged. At the best, it could be burglary in the third degree, a more likely criminal trespass. So, no justification on that basis. Was there an arson? No. Was there a rape? No. Was there a kidnapping? No. Was there a sodomy? No. So any of the marks that would allow a police officer in New York State to use deadly physical force at the prevent-terminate stage were not met in the Ashley Babbitt case. And even if you wanted to apply the standard for an arrest stage, Mr. and Mrs., murder, robbery, manslaughter, rape, sodomy, those marks weren't hit either. So you had basically no justification for using deadly physical force by the FBI's own inexorable standards. And they are the preeminent investigatory agency of the Justice Department. They're the people who are going to be investigating this. This and the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I find it interesting that they're going to be investigating the Minneapolis Police Department when one of their own federal brothers in law enforcement um, 
executed an unlawful use of deadly physical force resulting in the death of a U.S. military veteran of 14 years, Ashley Babbitt. And they see fit to impose no sanctions against this man. No charges are going to be filed. It is inexplicable. If any of these cases calls out for a trial of a law enforcement agent for a willful and deliberate action with forethought, it is the murder of Ashley Babbitt. It is not Derek Chauvin leaning on George Floyd's neck where the medical examiner says that pressure called no in, caused no injury. It is not Officer Kim Potter in the heat of, mo- of the moment and panic mistakenly grabbing her semi-automatic sidearm instead of a taser when it was clear by what she said that she was looking to use the taser against this man and warning him of her imminent use of it. But this man, who fired at Ashley Babbitt, who within seconds of being felled by that bullet, was surrounded by uniformed officers from the police, the Metro Police, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, in looked like SWAT gear with helmets and vests. Now, those officers, as I've said before, didn't just uh, materialize from the Starship Enterprise and beam down. They were there within seconds, meaning they were there when he fired. He fired at a crowd, into a crowd, at an innocent woman who was flanked by fellow law enforcement officers. At the very least, this is the height of a reckless act. This is manslaughter at the very least. This was a premeditated act. The fact that he's not being charged at all is proof of, again, what I have called the watchword for, the, for this administration, the watchword for the Democratic Party going forward. Hypocrisy. The hypocrisy, the total disgusting hypocrisy of the uber left in this country. Do as we say, not as we do. This man should be drawn and quartered. What a piece of garbage. How did he ever get to the rank of lieutenant? And there was scuttlebutt that this is also the man who was assigned to protect the Republicans at that softball game when Steve Scalise was gunned down. Where the hell was he and what the hell was he doing? He was so quick to shoot an innocent woman, but he couldn't bring himself to prevent the shooting of, this, of these Congress people. Disgusting. This is disgusting. In case you haven't seen what's going on here, ladies and gentlemen, this is all part of a giant movement to fundamentally bring down the justice system in this country, to effectively handcuff and neuter every local police department in this country. The left in this country has already articulated their demand for a new agency, defund the police, replace the police with this yet unnamed force. It's not hard to figure out what this unnamed force is going to be. They're going to look to federalize the police department in this country. They're going to have a national law enforcement, and eventually they're going to subsume all these local departments into this federal law enforcement. Now, how are they going to do this? Oh, they can't do that, Jamie. They can't do it. Uh, The Constitution. The Constitution, according to the left, doesn't mean anything. The Constitution is nothing more, in their view, than a living document. And I've told you and warned you about the fallacy of that premise. That means it can be changed, massaged, and manipulated into whatever they think it needs to mean at a given point in time to achieve their ends. Now, they can't do it with this current court. You see what they're doing. They're trying to change elections so that no one can ever get elected again from the conservative or the Republican Party. They're saying they're trying to prevent voter suppression. They're actively engaged in voter suppression, suppression of conservative votes. 
That H.R. 1 bill, which I told you about last month, is designed to codify, as a matter of federal law, all the chicanery you saw in those six swing states, to take away the autonomy from the states, to decide and administer how elections are run in their states, and make everyone adhere to a federal standard where same-day registration, online voting, online registration, no ID, all of this can be done to facilitate voter fraud so that dead people can vote, so that illegal aliens can vote. All of this. But they have a Supreme Court, which has six conservative justices on it, really five, because Roberts is a traitorous bastard. But we have five very conservative justices, supposedly. We have Clarence Thomas, probably the most conservative of the bunch. We have Sam Alito. And we have uh, Justice Gorsuch, appointed by Trump. Justice Kavanaugh, uh, appointed by Trump. And we have Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, appointed by Trump. Now, even if Roberts were to defect, those five justices, if they really were true to their oaths, would have to agree that H.R. 1 is an unconstitutional piece of legislation. So what do you do? What do you do? You pack the court to make those six conservative justices a non-entity. Pack it to 13 justices. Add to the two liberal justices four more liberals. And now you've got a seven to six court and possibly an eight to five court because Roberts will probably defect. And then you'll have all these conservatives, because Democrats never do this, but conservatives will. They'll all start bailing out of the court after a time because nobody wants to sit on the bench and write minority opinions that have no meaning and no force of law. So they feel bored and they just leave. And we can see the seeds of that being sown. They're talking about it. Right now, the Democrats are demanding that Justice Barrett recuse herself from campaign donations case. It's amazing how these Democrats, when they know someone's going to vote against them, they find a reason that they need to recuse themselves. I didn't see them asking Justice uh, Breyer to recuse himself from the Fan Fan Booker case, which decided the fate of the sentencing guidelines, sentencing guidelines that he helped author when he was on the Crime Commission back in 1987. Uh, There was no issue there. He had a vested interest in keeping those things alive because it was part of his legacy. And yet they want him to, they want her to recuse herself. Three Democratic lawmakers, according to this article in the Times, are demanding that Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett recuse herself from an upcoming high-profile donor privacy case because one of the litigants spent money in support of her confirmation to the nation's highest court. Nominated by then-President Donald Trump, the constitutionalist conservative Barrett was confirmed by the U.S. Senate just before Election Day 2020. She replaced the late liberal Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had passed away September 18th. The case, Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez, and a companion case, Thomas More Law Center versus Rodriguez, have been consolidated and will be heard together by the court on April 26th. That's just five days from now. The Americans for Prosperity Foundation and its sister organization, Americans for Prosperity, are influential libertarian conservative nonprofits funded by businessman Charles Koch and his late brother David Koch, and they have chapters throughout the nation. The Thomas More Law Center, not to be confused with the Chicago-based public interest law firm, the Thomas More Society, is a conservative Christian public interest law firm 
based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. California regulations require charities to file a copy of their IS Form 990, an informational return for tax-exempt organizations. They have to file this annually with the state. Schedule B is the form that contains the names and addresses of the top donors, and it's made available to the public. But Schedule B donor information must be kept confidential under the pain of federal and civil criminal penalties. When a Schedule B is released to the public, identifying information about the donor is redacted. Since 2005, California has demanded that charities file with the state unredacted Schedule B documents, giving state officials the names of donors. The state's policy is to keep the information confidential, but there are no legal penalties for breaching confidentiality. And we all know how up and up California is with that piece of crap Governor Gavin Newsom. So the charities concerned refused to file their Schedule Bs unredacted with the Democratic Party-dominated California government because they don't trust that government to keep their uh, information secret. And in this era of doxing, you can understand why, because they don't want their donors to be harassed, because if they're harassed, maybe they won't donate anymore. So this is a way of using intimidation to try and starve up the donations that go their way. And no one will ever complain when conservatives are harassed or when Sarah Huckabee Sanders is run out of a restaurant. But watch this, the kicking and screaming that goes on if they try to get Maxine Waters out of a restaurant. Now, a U.S. District Court agreed with the charities and preliminarily enjoined California from requiring petitioners to submit their Schedule B forms. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed. Now, we know how liberal the Ninth Circuit is. This is the most liberal circuit in the entire country. Now, Emily Seidel, the CEO of AFPF, previously said stripping citizens of their privacy is a tool wielded by some in political power to silence their opposition and stifle individuals from engaging in educational and charitable efforts. The Americans for Prosperity told The Hill in September of last year that it planned to spend somewhere in the seven figures on an advertising blitz to support for Barrett's nomination. Now, this case that's being heard, uh, I don't see any reason why Justice Barrett should refuse uh, or should recuse herself. This is not a case that is unique to her. The question here is not about whether she derived a benefit. The question is whether or not people who donate to organizations like this have a right to expect that their identity be kept confidential so that they are not the subject of intimidation. And both liberals and conservatives would benefit equally from that sort of position. So I don't see any reason why Amy Coney Barrett should have to recuse herself simply because in this case, some donors in this organization donated to a campaign to support her nomination. But in a three-page letter dated April 16th, Senators Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat Rhode Island, and Richard Blumenthal, Democrat, Democrat Connecticut, along with Representative Hank Johnson, Democrat Georgia, suggested this expenditure may cause Barrett to be biased in favor of AFPF. Statute, constitutional case law, and common sense all would seem to require your recusal, they wrote. At a minimum, there should be a public explanation as to why you think a recusal is not required under federal law. During your recent confirmation proceedings, you were asked in written questions whether you would recuse yourself from Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez, then pending on the court's certiorari docket. You declined to do so, answering that as a sitting judge, 
And as a judicial nominee, it would not be appropriate for me to offer an opinion on abstract legal issues or hypotheticals and that such questions can only be answered through the judicial process. Because the Supreme Court has since granted the case, these questions are no longer abstract or hypothetical, so we renew the request. Now look, we know what they're trying to do, but I'm shocked that in this hyper-political climate that we're in right now, that it's only these three lawmakers. And take it from where it comes. This chap in Rhode Island, Rhode Island is a very, very liberal state. I think very little of him. Richard Blumenthal, I happen to know. I had a, I'm not going to give too much away, but I had a business relationship with his family. I never met Mr. Blumenthal, but I had a business relationship many years ago with his wife and one of his daughters. I'm not going to mention her name. And I happen to know that he's no shining star. In fact, he's a liar. He lied about his service in Vietnam. He lied about a lot of things. And he was the one that, uh, in in the most ridiculous uh, display, again, of hypocrisy, questioned Justice Kavanaugh during his confirmation using a Latin phrase, which means, you know, uh, basically, if one thing is a lie, then you must accept that all of it is a lie and reject it in in total, something along those lines. So using his own inexorable logic and standard, why should we believe anything that comes out of Richard Blumenthal's mouth? He did lie about his service in Vietnam, and he's lied about it repeatedly. So therefore, if he ever applies his own standards to himself, he should just shut the hell up and keep his mouth shut and stop opening up and putting his foot in it. But this is the extent to which they're going. They're trying to, failing to pack the court, they're trying to stifle sitting members of the court. And I will lose all respect for Amy Coney Barrett if she knuckles under to this pressure and recuses herself. It is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And let me tell you something. These people, these liberals in Congress, they don't speak for everyone. Far from it. They don't speak nearly for everyone. Conservative black leaders in Georgia call attacks on the new Georgia voting reform law misinformation. According to this article, a group of 21 black black leaders defended Georgia's recently passed voting law in a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee members on Tuesday, calling the criticisms of such laws a campaign to sow division and misinformation as part of a broader agenda by the Democrats to nationalize voting laws. Now, did I not just tell you all this? But it's refreshing to know that black Americans are realizing that they're being hustled. Quote, it has become clear that even well-intentioned critics of the law simply have no idea what the law is, the community leaders wrote in their letter. It is clear they have no idea how favorably Georgia's new law compares with most other states, including President Biden's home state of Delaware. And it is clear they have no idea that a majority of black voters across the country support the key provision under attack by critics, the simple requirement that voters be able to identify themselves when voting. This is the same simple requirement needed to pick up baseball tickets or board a plane or buy a six-pack of beer, for that matter. Why can't you require someone to identify themselves when they're voting in a federal election? The Georgia voting law, like so many others, being pursued by Republicans in state houses across the country is a blatant attack on the right to vote, the Constitution, and good conscience. It's Jim Crow in the 21st century, and it must end. This from the president in stupefaction, the idiot, dementia-ridden fool Joe Biden. He doesn't know what he's talking about. 
The critics don't know what they're talking about. These black leaders know exactly what they're talking about. Joe Biden isn't running anything. I'm more convinced than ever that this country is being run by a shadow government run by Barack Obama and Valerie Jarrett, which is why they never left Washington. Biden and Kamala Harris are nothing more, more than gloves. Obama fills them, Obama moves them. They have no mind of their own, and they have no right to do anything except what their master says. That's what it's coming down to. On a positive note, I don't want to be all down. I want to leave one positive note. You know, I just recently took the vaccine. I told you about that last month only because I have two businesses and they were going to financially break me if I didn't take it. Because if I had a positive test, even if it was a false positive, I'd have to cancel any bookings that I had in my private businesses and I'd have to close one of my other businesses or pay somebody to run it. Either way, I would have been financially ruined. It isn't like I work for someone that would simply pay me to sit home while I'm recovering from COVID. And now all this talk of vaccine passports. Well, <clears throat> I had the second shot yesterday and I'm feeling like crap today. I'm surprised I even had the strength to do this podcast. But I wanted to get it out because I didn't get a chance to do one uh, yesterday or Monday. But South Dakota's governor said on April 21st, that would be Christy Nome, that she has taken executive action to ban the use of digital or paper documentation that enables people to show proof that they've been vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. Governor Christy Nome, a Republican, said the executive order she signed concerning so-called vaccine passports aligns with making sure South Dakotans are able to exercise their freedoms. Quote, Since the start of the COVID pandemic, we have provided the people of South Dakota with up-to-date science, facts, and data, and then trusted them to exercise their personal responsibility to make the best decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We've resisted government mandates, and our state is stronger for it. Sounds like exercise in freedom to me. She went on, I encourage all South Dakotans to get vaccinated against COVID-19, but we are not going to mandate any such activity. And we are not going to restrict South Dakotans' exercise of their freedoms with un-American policies like vaccine passports. In our state, under God, the people rule. And that is how we will operate for as long as I am governor. Governor Nome, I wish you Godspeed, and I wish that you have a long reign. As I understand it, I think there are term limits in uh, South Dakota, but I think you have another six years left if you get reelected. I'm sure you will. You're very popular. And America needs governors like you more than ever to try and throw back and stem the tide against the inexorable lurch leftward that is being engaged in on the part of the Communist Democratic Party or the Democrat Communist Party, however you want to call it, of the United States. Because make no mistake, that's exactly what it is and what it's become. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.